Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, resistance to vaccines has caused the needless death of thousands of Americans, according to a new study. Plus, is the Afghanistan withdrawal turning into the end of Vietnam? And some Republicans still haven't given up on the big lie. But first, more trouble for the city of Seattle with regards to the consent decree and the city council's efforts to defund police. Judge Robart, who has been overseeing that consent decree for some time, well, he had some harsh words for city lawmakers. Joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich, and you were at this hearing that happened on uh, Tuesday of this week. So mm-hmm. what exactly was this hearing about? What exactly happened? I like what we just talked about. July 27th, 2012, a day that will live in infamy for the city of Seattle. That was the day that this consent decree we've been talking about for nine years was signed between the Department of Justice and the city of Seattle. And basically, just to retract so people understand what this is, a consent decree is an agreement between two sides. It was the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the city of Seattle agreed on certain police reforms. And that was they had established a pattern of racial profiling. Yeah, there's like nine different steps yeah. they were going to follow up. And that's it led to the direct, uh, creation of OPA, the uh, Office of Police Accountability, Community Police Commission, a lot of things. So, uh, so Judge Robart's job is basically the gatekeeper of that. He's making sure that both sides are on track for following up on their promises. And that, those promises have not been kept all the way for nine years. So Judge Robart on Tuesday said, you know, it's time to bring all the parties back into my courtroom again. Let's hear again an update. Because as you know, Jeff, federal judges have wide latitude to say what they want. They can give their opinion. Um, and so Judge Robart wanted to hear from all sides after a summer of protests. You know, where do we stand? And what he heard, I thought, what my personal takeaway, what he heard, was what he heard from the court-appointed monitor, uh, Dr. Antonio Oftali, who is basically the eyes and ears of Judge Robart. He doesn't make the decisions. He doesn't make opinions. He just says, this is the evidence that's happening on the ground floor of the city of Seattle and the police department. And here you go, Judge Right, And he issued his uh, report to the judge. And he basically said right now that the SPD is at what he called an inflection point, that it can go really bad or really good, depending on what goes forward. And what he cited at the time, what, what concerned him the most was response times and staffing levels, which that is a concern of the judge. And the judge reads the papers. He he watches the news. He's very familiar with the elections. He brought that up in his in his in this hearing many times that we're facing a new we're going to have a new uh, uh, city attorney. We're going to have a new mayor. We're going to have a couple of new council members. Um, and it can change everything with SPD. We don't even have a full-time chief. The mayor has delayed the appointment of a chief. So Judge Robart is very up to speed on all the politics in Seattle. So with what ju- what uh, Mr. Offaly said and what Judge Robart's seeing on the ground just about the political climate change, he two things. He showed that there was a concern about what uh, Mr. Offaly said in his uh, pivotal comment about a uh, inflection point. But he's also very concerned about Seattle politics and how it's delaying everything and these implementations of these measures that the consent decree that he's overseeing. It's like that just the mere fact that the current mayor, Jenny Durkin, is delaying the pick of a police chief until the next mayor comes into office. Well, the police chief plays a huge role in all this here (laughs) and the decisions he or she will make. So he was really kind of 
frustrated about the political atmosphere in Seattle. He called the he didn't want the mayor to be and the city council to be destructive, rather be constructive in all this. Mm-hmm. And so he listened to all that and gave his basically a statement saying, you know, I'm glad you guys reported back to me, but I do have some concerns and we're not on the pathway yet of, of fulfilling this uh, consent decree. And he says, as soon as we do, and quoting here, I'll be off your back. And that's what the judge said. And, and so when were they supposed to meet these deadlines for reform and changing things? I mean, you said it's been going on for nine years. Well, they said, and, and it's funny because of the signatures that were on this consent decree, there are only two left that are still in office. Pete Holmes, the city attorney, and the judge. Jenny Durkin signed it, but she left as U.S. attorney. So there, there's only now after uh, January 1st, there's only going to be one person because uh, Pete Holmes is going to be no longer city attorney. Be Judge Robart. And Judge Robart made the snickery comment that when he first entered in the consent decree, this was only supposed to be five years long. Wow. And he's, We're approaching and, twice as long. Yeah. And he's when other judges in other uh, jurisdictions have asked him about Seattle's consent decree, and these judges are considering consent decrees in their cities, he quipped and said to the audience, and I'm sitting in the audience, he says, when, I tell, when judges ask me about that, I tell the other judge, this is the only place, Seattle is the only place where you have two parties, but nine points of view uh, in, a, in a court case. Wow. So it shows you how complex it is. Well, and then, you know, one of the other things that uh, you and uh, other reporting uh, and other reporters uh, have have gathered on, too much knee-jerk, not enough forethought was another thing that Robart Mm -hmm. said in Mm -hmm. in this. Is he referring to the efforts by the city council to, quote, defund the police? Yes. Uh, I mean, that's he won't say it directly, but he's clearly saying that. That's part of his, when he said he doesn't want the city council to be destructive, Mm -hmm. rather be constructive in what they do going forward. Um, And so the whole aspect of defunding police, which is resulting in fewer staff, police officers, which is also resulting in longer uh, response times, is a big concern of his. So where are we for staffing levels at the Seattle Police Department right now? Because I, I saw at one point they were down, what, 15% from what they wanted to be, and uh, that was... Well, unofficially, I've had people tell me in the department that they're looking at maybe more than 300 officers by, by the end of the year will be gone. So right now, just this year, just to give you some idea... The annual FTE, that's fully trained officers, they're expecting to have... Full-time equivalents. Yeah, for it, for this year, the city council planned on was 1,286. That's already below by a, a, more than 100 officers what they've been normally having. Um, so it was around 1,300, 1,400 before... Last week yeah. or last year's riots. Yeah. So then the council kind of reestimated it, cut some of the staffing, and said, "Okay, we think there's going to be 1,286 by year's end or or this year uh, FTEs at the police department." Well, now that estimation's been revised by the police department, and it's now 1,165. That's a drop of 121 officers, more officers than the council anticipated they would have that's a, at a level that the council had originally said would they be satisfied with which is almost 1300 officers now police estimates are saying it's going to be 121 less below what the council is estimating and they then they're projecting the council projected 87 new hires this year well excuse me 114 new hires but in reality it's going to be about 87 that's 27 less than what the council 
projected would be new hires. So this is this is a major staffing shortage. This is yes. This I is, mean, the, the chief has been saying that, but now you always wait for the numbers to come out, and now the numbers are actually coming out. You you're seeing in cold hard numbers the staffing reductions. It's just not just talk about it, but these are numbers. And I want to emphasize below what the council had estimated because the council wanted to to cut the department. So they felt that this is the level they want to cut to. Well, in reality, it's getting lower than what the council wanted. So it's they, it, by attrition and people leaving other four other jobs, four other departments, I've known several people in law enforcement that have said, you know, we've had enough of the politics around here and decided to get out mm-hmm. and, or, or move somewhere else. Uh, is is that one of the things you're hearing from sources within the department? They're feeling hamstrung by the city council and the mayor. They can't do their jobs. And so they said, you know what, I'm not even going to bother working for this department anymore? Well, you you that, that can be true. I mean, you'd have to interview all the, the officers. Uh, the numbers show that there was a huge amount of separation pay, um, way more than the council had anticipated this year. We're talking millions of dollars more, and people are burning off their sick leave now. You know, there's a they they come up with a day, here's a daily total of how many officers on an average basis, and it's below always below what there should be. And the and the department has said there's a lot of people taking their sick time. They basically, they're burning off their sick time, and and, and this is this is the natural assumption I'll say they're burning off their sick time in anticipation of a departure. Uh, whenever they decide to leave. So plenty of officers, and you know, interesting fact that I did not know, that if SBD maxed on its projections, like how many people can hire uh, on a monthly basis, the maximum SBD can hire in terms of recruits is the academy maximum, which is seven officers a month. That's all they can, I mean, that's the max. Wow. So you're talking- There's no way they fill that gap. That's right. You know, you, you, they, they anticipated 114 new hires. You know, you have some lateral, you have some lateral movement from other departments and rehires. They estimate two rehires a month. People who may have quit and want to come back. I don't know. I don't have any figures on how many rehires they've had. They had not produce those numbers. But the overall storyline, at least on just in terms of the staffing, it's way below than what the council had anticipated and adopted the 2021 budget for. So SPD's already revising that to be lower than what the council had expected. Still to come, all of this is having a deleterious effect on response times. We'll get into that when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge, joined by Como's Matt Markovich, and we've been talking about the trouble the Seattle Police Department is in. Federal Judge James Robarn, who is overseeing the nine-year-old consent decree, had some harsh words in a hearing this week pointing to the fact that with so many officers leaving the force and the city council trying to defund the department, response times have skyrocketed upwards of an hour in some cases. That's right. So it's it's no secret, and the chief has said this many, many times, that he's prioritized the response calls to 911 to priority one responses. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they triage calls in every department whenever right. they come in anyway, right? Um, yeah, so so priority one is like domestic violence calls. Um, Critical Running away, you know, uh, persons. Um, you know, even a, a vehicle lockout where the someone's locked in a car, you mm-hmm. know, that's considered priority one. Obviously... Homicide, uh, violent crimes. Mm. I mean, I think it comes with the no- same knowledge we all know that 
something that's really bad. Somewhere, is, someone's life is in danger. Yeah. And you know, and they've always been targeting. You want to get there less than seven minutes. That's a priority one kind of priority <laughs> time, mm-hmm. right? Well, that, now that, I, I don't know. That's that seems high to me. Is that co- sort of the standard though for law enforcement? Well, that's a or goal. That... So you want to be under seven minutes for any kind of priority one call. And now a lot, like and I, you know, I deal with a lot of the homeless camps. Mm. Like we just had a, a stabbing Wednesday morning up at a camp that's been there forever, right by the navigation center. And I went up there. Campers complained that the cops didn't show up for 15 minutes. Well, the one camper who called 911 said the cop did show up right away, but because of rules could not go into the camp by themselves because they need a backup. So there's certain priority, even on priority one calls, cops just can't, one cop can't run in blazing for whatever reason. They have to wait for backup, even if they're the first well, to show up. Well, put yourself in danger. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, there's all these other things you would think, you know, as soon as they show up, well, you got he may be the first to show up, but he has to wait maybe a couple more minutes for the nearest other patrol car to show up, lights and sirens. A lot of things play a role into a priority one response and when an officer actually hits, puts the boots on the ground and goes into like a camp to deal with a violent shooting like that was a shooting. The guy was nearly dying, bleeding out after someone shot him in the in the throat, the campers told me. So if you look at some of the response times now, looking back at this second quarter, so of this year. Um, it, it, they broke it down by precincts and it's a kind of regional thing. But you talked about that seven minute mark. Mm-hmm. In every precinct in the last quarter, nobody made it under the seven-minute mark. At the in the East Precinct, is nearly eight minutes uh, for a response time average. In the East Precinct, in the North Precinct, it was twelve minutes. In uh, the South Precinct, it was ten minutes. Um, in the West Southwest Precinct, it was eleven minutes. In the West Precinct, which is downtown, it was nine minutes. This is an average priority one call so response So domestic time. violence, someone's got a gun, someone's life is in danger, and it takes sometimes in excess of 10, 12 minutes for officers to show up. A mm-hmm. lot can happen in that time. That's right. Now you have, those are the main big priority one calls. Now priority two calls are the ones that are of, of lesser importance. Um, you know, uh, you got your bike stolen, you know, a burglary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're... It's something that doesn't sound like it involves a gun or violence will be considered the triage. They'll do triage at 911 called a priority two call. Well, some of the response times in those same areas that we were just talking about, the East Precinct, Capitol Hill, the average response time was 39 minutes. In the North Precinct, of North Seattle, the average response time was 62 minutes. Jeez. Over an hour. Yeah. Um, the South Precinct, 40 minutes. In the Southwest Precinct, it was 48 minutes. And in the West Precinct, which is downtown, 44 minutes. And let alone something, priority three? I mean, does that even exist? Do they not even go well, to these or what? Well, and let's put it this way. Because the chief has made priority one calls, that that's what the officers go to right now. I mean, they're focusing on just. They As, want to bring, I mean, you, well, you do triage. You want to go to the worst. Of yeah, the you worst. want to go to the worst. So, and you're still, and those times are still high. Yeah. So they're going to focus everything they can on priority nine one one calls. So calls like narcotic activity, burglar alarms where there's no evidence of a suspect in the premises, uh, audible residential panic alarms, priority three and priority four calls, and callers requiring an officer just to take a report. They don't even dispatch anybody that. The, the the rules are communications, the dispatch center. That is the lowest priority. They're not even going to send anybody. You would think that, you know, you call 911, maybe you'll get some sort of response. Well, I'm looking at what the what was released to to the Seattle City Council by SBD about call priority, 
call priority and communications will not dispatch anybody with those calls now. If that doesn't tell you what's going on with the Seattle Police Department and how short-staffed they are, I, I don't know what will, but is this a problem that's unique to Seattle, though? Because I'm guessing a lot of big cities have issues with response times. I would say so. I'm not privy to what other cities have. I don't. I do have a comparison. They, it wasn't part of this particular report. Um, but it has been an issue ever since we, we go all the way back to Chop and Chaz when they shut down the East Precinct. And they talked about the swelling response times because the precinct was closed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, That's when it really took notice on people's minds how long it takes an officer to show up. And then you had defunding the police. And you have the both Chief Best and Chief Diaz saying, you know, the more you cut officers, the longer response times. Well, we're seeing, we're seeing everything playing out right now. Now, during that council meeting, there was some criticism by council members to SBD about not necessarily, you know, saying, well, why, why do you have so many people out on sick calls? Or why do you have, why do you have 100 people that aren't on the street? You know, so they were starting to micromanage, ask questions of SBD about those. Well, how are you handling these people? Almost like, almost blaming this police department mm-hmm. for not handling these cuts appropriately. That, and, if I'm not mistaken, no one on the city council has any law enforcement background. There's a couple of lawyers, but none of them have worked as... No. On no. the ground officers. No, not at all. Um, I think the last person we had, I can't remember Harold, but I know that Tim Burgess was an officer, but he's long gone. You know? So uh, there isn't any institutional knowledge of being a police officer that was sitting on the council. You had Jim Pugel, who was running for council, but lost out to Andrew Lewis, who is an attorney, former city at, a deputy city attorney. So no, no, no institutional knowledge on that council. So, so what do you do now where, where does the where do you does the city go from here well this whole hearing was about the money saved <laughs> the apartment saving by not having all these off op- having all these officers quit so as it stands now the est- department is estimating about 15 million dollars has been saved because all these officers have been quitting and they haven't been been slow to rehire and so the city council goes huh what are we going to do with $15 million? And they want to spend it on something else, I guess. That's right. That's right. And, they, and, and so some of the things they want to talk about and spend it on is like Triage 1. Now, we've talked about Triage mm-hmm. 1, which is like Health 1. Um, it's a different kind of response when you call 911. For mental health crises. Yeah, if you're in a like mental that. health or a substance abuse crisis and don't need like an assistance, like you're, you're in trouble, you know, Triage one, a unit would come out. Now, health one is somewhat similar, that which is already in effect, where you have those crises out, and they come out, and they can deal with that person rather than a fire engine come out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if it doesn't sound like it's a medical issue, and you don't want to send an armed officer, you would send someone from a tri- this triage one unit, which doesn't exist yet. They're just looking for the funding of it, and so now the council would like to take the savings. It's getting from the, the police department of lost pay in a way. Office, they're not paying officers that don't exist. Take that money and move it to something like Triage One. And does Judge Robart think this is a good idea? Well, never got that into that deep a detail with him. Not at all. That he was just he was just hearing from the in the monitor was talking about the shortages and the staffing issues. What did come up in the Judge Robart hearing and it was a and it's a, it's going to be a big issue is the collective bargaining agreement with the Seattle Police Officers Guild, which is 
should be ongoing right now, but because there's no the mayor outgoing mayor, you have an interim police chief, that's kind of on hold right now. Well, that collective bargaining agreement is a huge plays an enormous role in the consent decree because the the judge and the consent decree wants police officers to do constitutional policing. There are certain restrictions they would like the city to do with its police force, including community policing. Well, the aspect, and Judge Robart's very high on community policing. Well, the monitor told the judge, you know, I know you're really high on community policing, but given our current staffing levels, we're not doing community policing. We're not doing it because there's not enough staff to do the community policing program that was originally set out in the cons- by both sides to work toward. Um, so that's a concern by Judge Robart, and that relates to the staffing issue. So it didn't get down to this type of minutia in front of Judge Robart, but he's familiar with the staffing, the um, response times, and especially when it comes to community policing, which is a huge concern of his, he's very concerned about it. So what were his marching orders after this meeting? It really, it was, it was basically telling the Department of Justice, which is, you know, overseeing what's happening at SBD. And the Department of Justice right now is doing what it called a deep dive study into random acts of SPD use of force. SPD has been changing its policy on how it uses uses of force on various things. Um, and they're cherry picking. They said they're cherry picking certain cases and just seeing if those particular cases that they're cherry picking fulfill a lot of the guidelines set by the consent decree. So they're in a deep, they said, they told the judge, we're in a deep dive doing that. And the judge basically said, well, when's that going to end? You know, you don't have all day to do this. We're, we're nine years into this and kind of, kind of ushered the Department of Justice speed up its time frame on its review of everything because they had have to agree as well as the city agree that everything's been copacetic we've met everything and then the settlement agreement which is basically the consent decree the judge would lift and that's what everybody wants but we're not close to that happening and the seattle process continues that's, that's right Kevo's <laughs> matt markovich thank you so much for your time and insight you're welcome when we come back requiring vaccines could have saved thousands of lives when the como politicast returns in just a moment welcome back to the como politicast I'm Jeff Pogelup. California, the first state in the country to say school staff from teachers to front desk staff to custodians to really everyone else must get vaccinated. This, of course, is uh, causing a lot of pushback, and there is talk about that happening here in Washington state as well. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles, and I can imagine there's a lot of teachers, a lot of union leaders that don't want this to happen. Yeah, and then there are those who who do as well in that uh, the, the biggest teachers union in the country is today saying the National Education Association, that they fully support this. They think that this is a good idea, which is a little bit different from some of the other unions, as California has started to say that public workers have got to get vaccinated, and if they don't get vaccinated, then they have to uh, repeatedly test negative, do it about once a week, some cases more often than that, and show that they have a negative test. But in contrast to some of the other public uh, worker unions, uh, the teachers' unions have been coming out and saying good, that many of their members... uh, on, at least when it comes to the, the NEA, they've got about 90% of members who report that they are fully vaccinated and they say they support this. Now, it is not a vaccine mandate. What it's saying is that the state wants you to get vaccinated, but if you refuse to or if you refuse to show whether you've been vaccinated, then you've got to get that uh, repeated testing done. Governor Newsom is saying this is something that the state has to do 
to try to get through this school year without having outbreaks in schools. Here's what he's saying. We think this is the right thing to do, and we think this is a sustainable way to keeping our schools open. So teachers, custodians, front office staff, they have a couple of weeks here, and then they've got to prove that they are fully vaccinated as kids. I know my kids went back to school today as children here in California are beginning to go back. And I can imagine there's a lot of talk over ethics because you now have issues of HIPAA, Health Information Privacy Protection Act. Just by wearing masks or providing this vaccination card, you're giving up information that legally you're really not required to do. Yeah, the issue with HIPAA, though, is that that is a third-party thing. If they were to ask your doctor or if the state were to go to your insurance provider or to an ambulance service and say, hey, did Jeff get vaccinated? They couldn't give up that information. But to ask you, that's not a HIPAA violation. I can ask you. uh, Anybody on the street can ask you. It's your option whether or not you answer it. uh, But it's not a a HIPAA violation or any kind of uh, legal violation to, to go to an individual and say, give me your health information. So the the state says it's allowed to do this. And then you look at San Francisco announcing it's going to be the, the first city in the country, major city in the country, to mandate full vaccination to go into bars, restaurants, theaters, all kinds of different venues. New York was the first to say you got to be vaccinated, but only with one shot of the vaccine. San Francisco is going full vaccination, assuming we're talking Moderna and Pfizer here. And uh, they are going to say before you walk into a bar or restaurant or other places that are public that you have to show, not really clear how it's going to be, but you have to show proof that you have been fully vaccinated. L.A. is looking at doing at least partial, if not full vaccination. L.A. is the city is looking at uh, one version. The county is looking at another. So this is beginning to jump to, to a lot more places now. And it is going to get into these thorny issues of what can somebody ask you to say, hey, I want to eat in this restaurant. But first, you have to give up this information. And, and that's going to be debated now. All right, ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for your time. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. That's what's happening in California. But there's a similar push here in Washington state. I'm joined by Como's Ryan Harris. And what's going on here? The superintendent of public instruction, Chris Rakedahl, has formally requested that the governor actually issue an order mandating that all teachers and school employees get vaccinated. And I tell you right now, it sounds like most people might kind of be on board with it. What about the unions? Because I know anything that changes, anything that's mandatory for teachers, the unions tend to get involved very quickly. We know the the National Education Association is on board with what California is doing, but what about the WEA and, and similar unions here in Washington State? Well, the Washington Education Association sent me what I would almost call kind of a cryptic written statement where it says, you know, it's supportive of all of the public and public health safety measures that are being taken, whether it's masking or distancing, and that it's encouraging all of its members to get vaccinated. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is it's not just the school employees, school bus drivers specifically A lot of them work for contractors like this company, First Student. So I talked to the Teamsters Local 174 that represents the drivers, and they're not 100% certain that because they are employed by a contractor, that the governor might even have the authority to issue such an order that would apply to the bus drivers. Now, that said, they also made it clear that any kind of situation like that that changes working conditions 
is a mandatory trigger to go back to the bargaining table and hash out the details. And those details include how you would verify it, how that information is going to be protected for privacy purposes. What happens if somebody loses their job? What happens next? There's a whole slew of things that they would have to hammer out at the bargaining table in order for this thing to happen. Well, and we're not just talking teachers and bus drivers. You also have custodians, front office staff, all sorts of support staff that go along with school district employees. Well, and it's different because if those people are employed by the school district, then the governor does have the legal authority to mandate that. And that was the one thing that the school's chief, Chris Rakedall, made clear. He says, you know, these districts have the local authority when it comes to educational matters. But when it comes to an issue like life and death, like COVID, that's where the governor's authority kicks in. Now, if their union employees and their own unions decide to step up, all of those all of those groups could end up back at the bargaining table. So have we heard from the governor, do we have a timetable on when he might do this if he decides to do this? Well, the governor's office also sent us a cryptic note uh, when this information first came out that, that Chris Rakel was going to make this request. And they basically said, we don't have any announcements planned for right now. That's Como's Ryan Harris. Sadly, half-truths, innuendos, and outright lies about the COVID vaccine have convinced many to not get it. Como's Brian Calvert has a look at that. What is spreading as fast as the Delta variant? A Northwest researcher says there's more misinformation about COVID right now than there's ever been. While sites like Facebook and Twitter at times check facts and block misinformation, it's still there, prompting Governor Inslee to recently say, One is the COVID virus. But the second is just as deadly, and that's misinformation. Washington State University professor Erica Austin. It has gotten worse. And unfortunately, we know that not only has it gotten worse, but uh, it has gotten worse on purpose. Part of the reason for the sudden burst of bogus COVID facts is that the rules released by places like the CDC keep changing, says Professor Janessa Graves. We're living in a very interesting time right now where science is evolving right before our eyes, and that's the whole nature of science is that is constantly adapting and constantly evolving which makes it our jobs really exciting but it also makes it very confusing when everybody's lives are impacted by this her advice if you see something on social media claiming it's a covid fact find the source of the information consult the cdc website for current regulations or just call your doctor brian calvert Como News. And misinformation and the lack of vaccinations that leads to have led to thousands of deaths in Republican-controlled and vaccine-resistant states like Texas and Florida. That part of the story from Como's Manda Factor. The Florida Hospital Association says COVID-19 admissions across the state have surged to a new high. Dr. O'Neill Pike is the chief medical officer at Jackson North Medical Center. The data is absolute. The folks who are actually vaccinated are being protected to the tune of 90 plus percent. Now, a new analysis shows higher vaccination rates in both Florida and Texas could have saved thousands of lives. ABC News senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky is on our Como Newsline. Tell us more, Aaron. This is a study out of the Yale School of Public Health, Manda, that found had Florida and Texas, uh, two of the states with relatively low vaccination rates, uh, under 60 percent, been a little bit better in their vaccination, maybe up where you know some of the New England states are, 74, 75 uh, percent. That could have saved almost 5,000 lives. 
170,000 hospitalizations. This is totally hypothetical. It's nothing certain, but it is based on real numbers. And I think that the broad message there, Amanda, is that vaccines save lives. Did they do all states, break down all states by vaccination or just Florida and Texas for this study? They used singled out Florida and Texas as examples uh, of states where the the vaccination rate has really lagged and where there's an incredible caseload. Uh, and, And I think they're making a correlation there that if not enough people are vaccinated and, the, and, and you know, the caseload increases, so do the hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, it, it, it's intuitive, I think, and it's probably what we know, but I think it reinforces with real-time numbers that the vaccines are responsible for, um, you know, for fewer hospitalizations and fewer deaths. And, and that's exactly what they were tested against and, and exactly what they were meant to do. All right, Aaron, thanks for the information. ABC News senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. And that's Como's Manda Factor. We have to take a quick break, but coming up is the withdrawal from Afghanistan looking like the withdrawal from Vietnam when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojla. Kandahar, the second largest city in Afghanistan, is now under Taliban control after Afghan forces there surrendered. Now, thousands of American troops are heading back into the country, not to turn back the enemy, but rather to get the rest of the Americans out. As Politico put it, this is starting to look like Joe Biden's fall of Saigon. Missy Ryan is covering it for The Washington Post and spoke with Como's Tom Hutler. How many soldiers and Marines are deploying and what's the mission? So there are 3,000 American troops that are heading to Kabul at this moment, and they're going to be based at the International Airport in Kabul, which is fairly close to the U.S. Embassy, and their objective is to uh, provide security and facilitate the departure of civilian staff of the U.S. Embassy, not all of them, but many of them, and also local Afghans who have worked with the U.S. government and are part of a, a program where they apply for asylum in the United States. And so both of those groups will be airlifted out of Afghanistan, and the the force of 3,000 will be there for some period of time. They haven't said how long. I think it just sort of depends on how things go. And also, um, there is another group of um, uh, more than 3,000 troops that is being brought to the Middle East to sort of be on standby in case they are needed in Afghanistan. And not just U.S. troops, but I understand troops from the U.K. arriving there as well. Uh, Kandahar, the biggest city taken, but uh, plenty of other territories have been captured in the last couple of days. In fact, I've heard now up to two-thirds of the country has been seized by the Taliban just in recent days. That's right. They've taken, at this point, um, you know, uh, more than a dozen provincial capitals. And it's really this um, dramatic and, and sort of shocking sweep across the country They have been able to push into many of these provincial centers without major firefights uh, because they negotiate deals with the local political and military officials. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that has dismayed the the U.S. government. But it's also a sign of the lack of confidence that those local leaders have in, you know, in the situation and in the, the ability of the central government to back them up. Kabul would be certainly a jewel in the crown for the Taliban. Is there any indication that President Biden, uh, that the U.S. policy he has in Afghanistan could change to keep that city safe? Not so far. Um, You know, they they obviously were forced to send this additional force uh, back into Afghanistan, which is is a number that was bigger than the force that that was there in Afghanistan um, at the, you know, at the 
um, beginning of this withdrawal process. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, no indication that he's going to you know, reverse the decision to withdraw or send back in combat forces or advisors or anything like that. That could change. You know, obviously, nobody wants Kabul to be taken by the Taliban. Um, but I think they're hoping that um, that it doesn't get to that point. Um, but but the situation is changing very quickly. Oh, yeah, it is a story that's being written minute by minute, seemingly. And we know you're uh, covering it and we'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much, Missy. Missy Ryan from The Washington Post. More at WashingtonPost.com. That's Como's Tom Hutler. Still to come, some still refuse to believe Joe Biden won the election and they hold power here in Washington state when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally this weekend, some Washington Republicans are holding what they call a hearing into unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud. But first, let's be clear. Donald Trump lost the election. Lauren Colt lost the race for governor. There has been absolutely no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Washington or any other state. Those three facts are indisputable, but some still refuse to believe them. Among them are State Representatives Robert Sutherland of Granite Falls and Brad Clippert of Kennewick. Their quote-unquote hearing is on Sunday at a church in Snohomish. Sutherland is leading that event, while Clippert has announced he is forming an election integrity caucus. However, Republican leadership has been quick to point out that these are unofficial actions. We'll have more next week. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.